0: Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Well, many of us have phobias. I don't like heights, for instance. And they're often related to survival instincts, such as a fear of heights or maybe a fear of snakes or spiders or other things that might be able to harm you. But one that comes up in research a lot is clowns. Why do a fair few of us suffer from cooler phobia, as it's called? It's really no laughing matter. We talk to a researcher who happens to be afraid of clowns himself about what he's learned about the reasons why. Why do so many of us have so much trouble accepting a compliment? It can cause some really awkward moments. Is there a way to accept praise in stride? We find out. A new federal law passed this week changes the rules around publication bans in sexual assault cases. Bans that often forced survivors into silence as well, even if they wanted to tell their story. We meet one of those who fought for the changes and won. But first, has street crime, violence, shoplifting, theft from stores reached a crisis point near you? In B.C., a group of big-name retailers, business groups, and others are joining forces to push all levels of government for more to be done. The president and CEO of London Drugs is among them, and he joins me to explain why. First up, I'm not sure what it's like in your community these days, but we have a pretty major retail theft problem going on where I am. For example, Vancouver police announced last week that a crackdown on violent and chronic shoplifters had ended in 258 arrests, 258, and the recovery of almost $57,000 in stolen goods in Victoria, police recently made 20 arrests and recovered more than $25,000 in merchandise stolen from one retailer during a three-day operation on one block in the downtown core of what is a relatively small city, one block. Now, often these are credited to organized theft rings, but it can become dangerous. Uh, Back in May of 2021, for example, a loss prevention officer was stabbed trying to stop a suspected shoplifter at Canadian Tire, also in Victoria. So now a group of retailers in BC, but they Uh, Many of them are uh, CEOs and so on that have businesses right across the country or right across the West, including Lululemon, Mountain Equipment Co-op, Eritzia, 7-Eleven Canada, London Drugs and others, as well as trade associations and community groups are coming together. To demand a coordinated government response for repeat offenders, uh, it says, are behind this wave of theft, vandalism and violent crime. The Save Our Streets Coalition says the need for immediate action is, quote, critical to meet threats to staff safety, rising security costs and the community impact. London Drugs President and CEO and SOS founding member Clinton Malman had this to say.
1: I bumped into a tourist from Britain, and his exact words were, Oh my God, what is going on with Canada? I always thought it was this wonderfully safe place, and they left. I bumped into a group from Norway, and they couldn't believe what they saw. And they were shocked at Canada. This is happening in Canada, this beacon of social justice around the world.
0: Right. So we know a bit about the impact. I'm sure you may have seen it even firsthand. I see it all the time here. People kind of storming into places and just stealing stuff brazenly without worrying a bit about what the consequences might be. Uh, So Clint Mallman, president and CEO of London Drugs, joins me now with more on this. Thank you so much for your time tonight.
1: Thank you very much, Ben.
0: It's not often we see so many people from, from the business community step up and talk about something that is a societal issue, a, a multifaceted societal issue, but clearly there's there's alarm here. What, what would you like people to know about where companies such as yours are at with this situation right now?
1: Well, I think what we see is that the ongoing escalation in crime, um, violence in our communities, and specifically the violence against uh, employees, against customers, Uh, The vandalism and certainly the theft and the cost that that is causing customers to bear has reached a crisis point. And uh, many of us behind the scenes for many, many years, long before COVID, have been trying to educate governments that action was going to be needed or we were going to reach a crisis point like what we're starting to see play out in areas like San Francisco, Portland, and certainly Seattle out in the West. Mm Uh, We're literally retail is leaving a desert and the downtowns are really becoming um, a place nobody wants to go. And this isn't just a big city issue. We see it in small towns and cities throughout the West.
0: What what impact has it had on an on a company such as London Drugs? I mean, I'm familiar with your with your outlets in downtown Vancouver and downtown Victoria and other parts. I mean, you're as far east as Winnipeg, uh, how are you seeing this on the ground? Because you have some pretty vivid examples of the kind of impact it's having on the company and specifically on your frontline
1: employees. Yeah, and that's right. That's that's our number one concern is the impact on our employees. Uh, they're suffering acts of violence. They're suffering acts um, just that are, are vile behavior towards them. Often innocently, they may just be in, approaching a customer uh, to see if they need help and. Um, uh, weapons are drawn on them or they're hit and spat on needles, um, all those, that type of behavior. And often it's because of someone in the act of or trying to commit crime. And please understand that we spend an enormous amount of resources trying to uh, train our people for nonviolent de-escalation techniques. We teach them verbal de-escalation techniques. We have some very sophisticated loss prevention uh, systems to ensure that our employees and customers are safe. We are a safe place to shop. That's why so many people come to us in these downtowns. But we constantly hear that people are just becoming uncomfortable on their own streets. Yeah,
0: you you had an example about stab vests, which I don't think people yeah. would often associate with people who work in an, in in a in a place like like a like a pharmacy. In the past, I mean, you're much you're more than a, you're bigger than a pharmacy, but still, I mean, in in that kind of environment, we wouldn't expect employees to need that kind of protection.
1: Absolutely, and I think that that if nothing impresses upon governments the need to act, that I never thought in my career that I'd have to be authorizing purchase orders for stab vests for some of our people. Uh, to protect themselves from this level of violence at the front of the stores. But sadly, that's what it's become to. And we're not alone. We know that many other retailers have had to equip, for example, their loss prevention people with this. And I think what's so frustrating and frankly demeaning to service industry employees, because it's not unique just to retail, is the fact that they see these same people in committing the same acts of violence and theft repeatedly. And quite frankly, our loss prevention people tell us that when they do catch these people, the language is things like, look, there's no consequences. I'll be back stealing from you or someone else within an hour or two. And the police have many examples of that in their different projects. And so for us, the police have been fantastic throughout the West in every community. They're doing whatever they can. I sense that they're frustrated, but that's best for them to answer. So, I think where our employees get incredibly angry is they see the government's letting them down. they see the justice administration system saying that uh i' we're, we we we're concerned about you we, we we're standing with you, but they don't see the action
2: what and I of, think yeah.
1: we, at well, the have... end of the day at the end of the day, when people feel unsafe on their streets, that's one of the most fundamental principles. That a government is in place to protect us as citizens.
0: What kind of impact is this having on consumers? I know in the states there's been some. I mean, it's difficult. There, there's been some argument over just how much shrink, as they call it, is, is actually is actually happening compared to what you'd expect to happen. Sales are up and so on. But what do you think the impact on consumers is? And at London Drugs, what what is the impact uh, as far as you as far as your shrink rate is concerned, and how that would compare to what you'd be comfortable with?
1: Yeah, well, we're very fortunate at London Drugs because of the level of loss prevention resources that we've committed millions and millions of dollars of rising in our budgets and hundreds of percent increases. So we we do have that ability to be able to do that. What a small business. Yeah. Um, small restaurants don't have that ability, which is why we need governments to act as well. But as you point out, depending on the statistics you want to refer to, about one5 to 3% of all retail pricing goes towards the prevention or recovery or or in matters like this. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, is happening at a time when Canadians are least going to afford it. Um, Our home province of British Columbia has earned the undesirable of being the most expensive place in the country to live, so that adds to the cost. Our numbers say that it's about $500 a person on average in retail that is paying more per year per family um, to deal with these matters, whether that be dealing with the direct cost of theft, putting in the protection mechanisms, and most importantly, supporting employees that have been the victim of all of these uh, crimes. Uh, What would you like to see done, Clint? I know this is a very
0: complex issue and lots of people are sort of, pointing their or focusing their energies on trying to figure out how to solve it. But what ultimately would retailers and other groups or other people in your organization like to see done about this in the short term?
1: Well, Ben, we need governments to act and it's very clear that their current whack-a-mole approach uh, with all the different varieties, as you point out, this is a very complex issue and we believe that it's safety for all on our streets uh, for example, we know that organized retail crime has come in and co-opted many of the people that are disadvantaged in the streets and, and causing them to commit tr- crimes on their behalf. So that's just one example of, of how this um singular approach so we're acting asking governments to act in a coordinated way to stop blaming each other uh, regardless of the level of government and to work together we know they can do it in retail and most of society saw a wonderful example of this at the beginning of covid mm-hmm. where they dropped their political allegiances they bo- dropped their their agendas to come together at the municipal, provincial and federal levels to focus on the health and safety of all Canadians. And this is another safety issue, and it does impact many employees' mental health. So we know that they can do it. They showed visible examples of that, how fast they can move when they want to. And I think that's another frustration of many retail employees and service industries. They see the government dragging their feet on this. Uh, you know, sadly, we often say, and it's controversial, that if someone was coming into an MP, an MOA's office, a city councillor, a Crown prosecutor, a judge's office, defecating in the corner of their office, right. stealing things off their desk, stabbing their employees, threatening them with needles, and and all that that uh, retail employees go through, sadly, too often in Canada, that the laws would have changed by now. And the fact that they're not, and it's they've left it open season on retail and service employees, and that's not acceptable in a society like Canada.
0: Yeah, I, I've noticed, I mean, I was in Seattle. I think a lot of people live out west, uh, make it to Seattle now and then. I mean, a lot of stores in the downtown core in Seattle look like fortresses now. Everything is locked away. I notice that hasn't been done here yet, but it feels like that's part of what you're raising the alarm about. There are only a few options here if this doesn't back away from the, the crisis level that you're you're describing.
1: That's right. And you're seeing in in small towns, big cities all across Canada, where when the cost of doing business is already high, uh, but you introduce employee safety and the cost of vandalism. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Montreal today, where I'm here on business, walking down St. Catherine Street. I think I went one block last night and I saw four broken windows that people had tried to break into. And I think when that sort of slow degradation of society is allowed to foster, that's when we lose our downtowns and that's when people lose that sense of safety.
0: Yeah. What, what else? I mean, I guess what's difficult is, is that it, it seems to me that this is not an easy place for an organization, for someone like you to step into. I mean, this is, can be pretty political. Uh, often CEOs of big organizations like London Drugs don't want to wander into these sort of societal issues. So clearly, and you're not alone in this group, uh, clearly, a lot of you really feel like it's, the time is now, right? It's not, or, or it's already past.
1: No, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, London Drugs is a family-owned company, multi-generational. We we, we avoid the limelight uh, at almost all costs, but we have a responsibility to our employees and to our customers to stand up and provide the leadership that we don't see governments doing right now. We know that there's many organizations. Retail Council of Canada is a, a great example where they've been fighting this battle for years, I think that just the fact that such wide geographies, citizens groups, business associations, trade associations, I had an email from a condo association last Mm. night, um, all wanting to bind together just illustrates that people are beyond frustrated. When you look at the amount of voters that we represent of just the retail service industry, the the largest employer in Canada, plus all these citizens groups, as we head into this federal and provincial election cycles, it's got to capture the politicians' uh, uh, imagination that they have to come up. Because I'm telling you, people are going to be asking politicians, what is their solution to keep me safe in my streets? And keep my, my, my businesses, my employer viable. And they'll, they'll vote based on those responses. The SOS group is non-political. It's, it's not aligned with anyone. We just want change. And we know the government's capable of it. And we'll work with any government that wants to uh, work with pace and understand the issues. But quite frankly, we've been at this for well over a decade trying to communicate to governments and the time for action is now. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ben.
0: don't know if you've been paying attention to the trial of ftx founder sam bankman fried that's been going on in manhattan for most of the past four weeks uh he took the stand a little earlier this week in his defense and now the defense and the prosecution have sort of made started to make their closing arguments i think the defense is done the prosecution might be done and then it goes to a jury of 12 to decide on what is one of the biggest fraud cases or biggest fraud cases in in u.s history it's absolutely massive so today uh assistant u.s attorney nicholas roos uh sort of enclosed said that Bankman-Fried stole billions of dollars from investors worldwide. Uh, defense attorney Mark Cohen uh, countered that Bankman-Fried told the truth when he testified over four days. He said that no fellow exec, that no one had really, uh, that he wasn't responsible, basically, is what he said at all this. It happened beneath him, and he never, uh, he never sort of sanctioned any of it. Uh, again, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried built this cryptocurrency exchange as the prosecution says, into a pyramid of deceit and stole billions of dollars from thousands of customers. That was sort of the gist of the whole thing as it came to an end. There are 12 jurors there. Of course, they're going to have to decide over the last four weeks. They've heard over the last four weeks whether this, in fact, uh, is a case where he, the, he will be guilty of this $8 billion in alleged theft. Again, one of the biggest financial frauds in U.S. history. Um, and the, he may learn his fate, the 31-year-old, just one year after FTX filed for bankruptcy in what has been called a swift corporate meltdown that shocked financial markets and wiped out what had been his estimated $26 billion dollar fortune. Can you imagine? We had Alex Tapscott on the show not long ago. He's the author of Web 3.0. Here's how he describes the case and the impact it's had on cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency markets broadly. He worked very hard to curate an image that would be palatable to traditional power brokers, whether it was
1: politicians or bankers. The collapse of FTX has obviously cast a pretty long shadow over the industry. This is garden variety fraud perpetrated by you know, an unscrupulous and overly ambitious individual, but that, frankly, it has nothing to do with the underlying asset
2: class.
0: There you have it. In all the jury heard 15 days of testimony, uh, three of Bankman-Fried's former close confidants testified for the prosecution after they entered guilty pleas. Um, What Bankman-Fried said in his own defense really is kind of summed up by this. This is what he said much earlier. Have a listen.
3: I feel really, really bad and regretful that I wasn't, and a lot of people got hurt, and that that's on me
0: what he's talking about there is others and accounting and so on so he's you know what's really interesting about this case is the amounts of money are so massive but at the end of the day it's kind of just your straight up fraud case daniel c silva is a former financial crimes prosecutor and an assistant u.s attorney in san diego he's now an attorney with uh with Buckhalter in san diego and he joins me now daniel thank you so much good evening ben Every time I see updates on this case, uh, because we haven't been talking about it a ton in Canada, but every time we see, I see updates on this case, the amounts of money are simply staggering. Uh, a reminder of exactly what's at stake in this case here. If you recall back a couple
4: of years ago, as unpleasant as it may be in the depths of COVID, you know, the United States gave trillions of dollars to its citizens to make it through. And what seems to have happened is many people invested in cryptocurrency. And one of the biggest exchanges, one of the biggest companies where you could convert U.S. dollars or any real currency to other cryptocurrencies was FTX. And with, with the price of Bitcoin, which is the main and most well-known cryptocurrency uh, going up through the roof in value, many people started investing, including institutional investors. And FTX was really considered the preeminent, at least in the United States. Um, cryptocurrency trading platform and an exchange platform. And as you mentioned, Sam bankman fried was the CEO. His value was tens of billions of dollars. The company, some were projecting it uh, to be a trillion-dollar company. It was going to be a revolutionary company. And what seems to have happened as the trial has gone along is that the company grew exponentially and it outgrew its risk controls. And really, it grew out of control beyond the experience and the ability for Sam Bankman-Fried and its co-founders to really manage all the risks that it was taking on.
0: Right. And at the basis of the case is a pretty straight-up financial fraud case, right, that they essentially took investor money and spent it on other stuff, that they, and without telling anyone, I mean, illegally, basically. What they, it, the allegation is that they took not only investor money in FTX improperly,
4: But they also took customer money improperly. So if I bought $10,000 worth of Bitcoin and kept those Bitcoin on the FTX accounts, when I asked for my Bitcoin back, they didn't have my money. They didn't have an equivalent value for it. The ultimate issue in the trial is, was that fraud? Did Sam Bankman-Fried knowingly and intentionally Uh, deceive customers and investors of what they were going to do with their money once FTX came into possession of it.
0: Right. And I guess that's ultimately, and you would know this from being a prosecutor yourself, that's really what the prosecution's been trying to prove for the past four weeks. What do you make of their case? I mean, I've been following it here and there and it seems like they, you know they've they've got former colleagues to testify against him and so on. You know those he really formed it wasn't a huge company at the beginning. He's they've gotten some pretty damning testimony from uh, from people from the prosecution witnesses. It seems like they have a pretty good case, but I'm not a lawyer. I
4: agree that they have a very good case. As you may know, I'm sure you and your listeners do that in the United States. In order to convict someone of a federal crime. The prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to 12 jurors that the defendant did the crimes that were alleged. And so that means that 12 out of 12 of the jurors have to agree that they, that it is not reasonable to doubt that Sam bacon fried knew he was committing fraud and intended to defraud investors and customers of FTX. That's an extremely high standard, and the way the government went about it was – through a standard uh, sort of fraud type case in that they found other people who had engaged in that fraud and conspired with Sam Bankman-Fried to engage in that fraud, not only did they plead guilty to that, they said, I did this crime, and I did it alongside Sam Bankman-Fried. Indeed, he directed me to commit a lot of these crimes. I have admitted my guilt, and now I'm here to tell you, jury, that I'm telling you the truth that Sam eggman was there every step of the way, and he's guilty as well.
0: What's I mean, he took the stand, which is always risky. What's the defense then in all this? Simply that he, he didn't know?
4: The defense is less. It's more than he didn't know. It's, one, I, I didn't know that I was doing anything deceptive because I never had that intention to deceive anyone. But even more than that, I wasn't doing the underlying transactions. From closing arguments today and through the general uh, testimony that came out throughout trial, his defense appears to be, I am the somewhat aloof and distant savant who decided how the company would ultimately develop and the trajectory that it would move as it grew and as it became more and more profitable. But I was not the day-in, day-out operator. That was left to my former girlfriend, who was the head of the hedge fund, Alameda Research. Or it was left to one of my other associates, who was the person who would code and ensure that the money was held in a safe space, whether it was in the Bahamas or some other bank account. Me, Sam bankman fried I'm the one who dealt with politicians. I'm the one who dealt with marketing. I'm the one who dealt with business partners or investors to get more money in. What happened once we got that money? I'm not really sure. Go ask the other people who pled guilty. That is the general uh, argument that he made, and that the jury is going to ultimately have to accept
0: or reject. Right. I thought they all lived together, though. (laughs) Like I thought this was a very tight knit group. If I if I've watched the coverage properly, I mean, these people. This was not your standard, you know, Fortune five hundred, seven billion employee kind of company. This was like a small group of people.
4: That's right, and. That's exactly one of the reasons why I think the implosion was so dramatic is that the company was very young. It was a couple of years old. And what's interesting is often tech companies like FTX, they often are valued at an extremely high amount, but they, for the longest time, they weren't very profitable. In this instance, FTX was wildly profitable. So in terms of, as you mentioned, opening, opening this segment, this is sort of a standard fraud trial. Yes and no. Um, In most sort of Ponzi schemes or most sort of tech schemes of companies that promise to do X but don't, the underlying product isn't functioning or they overpromise what it can do. In this instance, FTX really was a fully functioning and profitable business. The problem was it grew from, like you said, this sort of frat house culture and operational um, dynamic to this multi multi multi-billion dollar valued company and it didn't have the risk controls it didn't have the managerial experience and it continued to operate as if it was out of someone's garage or you know basement as opposed to this 30 40 50 billion dollar company
0: that it ultimately was and that's how you ultimately lose eight billion dollars which is the allegation Right. So not like a Theranos or something, but very much a profitable company that just was using the money in a way that that was allegedly illegal, right? Exactly. And not only and to your point, not only was it used illegally,
4: it was used to spend things that you would imagine many 20-year-olds would do if they came into several billion dollars, right? You rent this incredible house in the Bahamas. You order extravagant meals. You have some interesting... uh, furniture and and other benefits that you have in this sort of grandiose frat house for for lack of a better term and you know you, you kind of lose track of the money because you're not you're not a hardened business person you haven't had to do spreadsheets you haven't had to project budgets or or miss deadlines it's just sort of money was rolling in hand over fist i mean there's this great anecdote of Sam Bankman-Fried listening to investors as they wanted to give hundreds of billions of dollars to him in FTX. And the whole time he's playing video games on his <laughs> right. phone, he's not even paying attention. I
0: mean, this is the type of environment in which he was operating. Daniel, this I mean, you mentioned it earlier with a jury and a financial case, and I've covered financial cases with juries. It can be difficult sometimes to make your case, but it seems like this one is pretty straight. At least the prosecution's laid it out in a pretty straightforward kind of way. You're right, and this is a very
4: interesting case, and in one, that it reads like a Hollywood script, right? There's your form, his former reported girlfriend taking the stand who's pled guilty, his former best friend and college roommate who started the business with him who's pleaded guilty and identifies him in court and says, that's the guy who committed the crimes alongside me. I mean, this is really Hollywood-type stuff. The other thing is, even though it is ultimately a financial uh, crime and it is a financial case, there's very little, little transactional evidence that's necessary here for the United States to prove its case. The, the key here is the lie, right? It, fraud is, a, is basically the legal term for lying to get some type of property. And so the prosecution really, 90% of the case was to show that Dan Bankman Fried lied. He knew it was a lie. And he lied to get other people's property. And in closing today, the United States made this argument exactly. They said he, he took the stand. He didn't have to, but he deceived you. He lied to you. He did not tell you the truth. And, you know, that all goes to his credibility and, and whether or not he committed the crimes that are underlying
0: the ultimate charges that the United States brought to get Sam Bickman if convicted, I mean he faces an an awfully long time in jail. I know maximums aren't necessarily always the rule here, but uh, this is a heavy seven, hef- hefty sentence he could face if found guilty on on the charges.
4: Correct. Most of the charges that he is facing have a 20-year uh, maximum sentence. So if he presumably were convicted of several of them, those could stack, but generally in the federal courts Any sentence for multiple convictions is served um, concurrently. And so if he were convicted, let's say, of four of the counts and they each had a 20-year statutory maximum and the judge said, I'm giving you 20 years for each, they would most likely, in all likelihood, run concurrently. And so he would only spend 20 years in jail as opposed to 60 or 80 or whatever it was. The other issue is what will the judge ultimately arrive at in terms of a sentence up to 20 years? Because as you mentioned, the loss here could, could reach $8 billion. You know, he's looking at the statutory maximum. He really is looking at 20 years. Um, So, and the judge has, has shown um, that he's not particularly favorable to Sam Bankman fried or his case. And so it'll be very interesting if there is a conviction Uh, what the judge will ultimately decide he should
0: serve in jail. Any, um, I don't want you to predict, but any predictions on when this goes to the jury and and what the jury might, I mean, they have a lot, quite a bit of information to take away with them in a case like this.
4: I would suspect it goes to the jury tomorrow. Uh, My understanding is that the United States did their initial closing argument. The defense has either wrapped theirs up or will finish theirs early tomorrow morning. And then the United States gets the final word. It's called rebuttal. And, and they basically will rebut anything that Anne McFeed's defense counsel said at closing, and then it goes to the jury. I think there is quite a bit, um, but I also think going back to the, your previous question about what is the jury going to look at, I, I think it's relatively straightforward. It's uh, do you believe he knew about the fraud? And again, because while this is a financial crime, and this is a financial case. There's not a lot of transactions that they have to review. Here, the allegation is he lied about all this information. And then I'm sure there was testimony that described how much money they actually took and how much money they they took out of FTX accounts to be used in allegedly improper or fraudulent ways.
0: That's maybe that,
4: 5 or 10 percent of the evidence.
0: Right. And I guess no one denies that the money the money is gone daniel i i'm sure this is already good i know this is going to be a hollywood film so it reads like a hollywood script and no doubt we'll all be sitting in a theater one day watching it as well thank you so much my pleasure in my career as a reporter i covered a lot of court cases over the years and oftentimes um Publication bans are put in place quite quickly um, to protect the names of people involved in the case. Anytime you deal, uh, certainly with with anything involving a minor, obviously a publication ban. Uh, anytime you invo- you're, do a case that involves sexual assault, there's always, in my experience, a publication ban in place. Um, and normally it, it's, it's to... The benefit, according to the courts at least, to whomever the survivor of that assault is, right that's you're protecting their identity, and that was always seen by the court as being simply something that was put in place quite quickly um, and to protect protect the survivor right to protect the victim and all this. Um, but what if it's not? What if we've kind of gotten it wrong over the years? it's been in place since it was in place since 1988, and who gets to make the decision about whether or not? protecting one's identity is a benefit. That was the matter at the heart of a fight carried out by many, including a BC woman over the past several years, a fight they have just won. Uh, Again, as I was explaining, since 1988, publication bans have often been issued on reporting the names of survivals of sexual assault, which of course makes sense if the person doesn't want their name out there. But often those decisions were made by the courts with no consultation with the victim of the crime themselves. In in other words, kind of forcing their silence in all of this. Tonight I can say Kelly Favreau's name because, thanks to her campaign called My Voice, My Choice, those rules have now been changed. Here is Federal Justice Minister Arif Lalani earlier this week announcing the passage of Bill C-12.
1: We passed Bill S-12 in Parliament. This bill is critical in terms of empowering victims. Victims of sexual assault violence that have gone through the court process and been subject to a publication ban. In terms of empowering those victims, we leaned on the advocacy we received from My Voice, My Choice and LEAF two really important organizations that helped us preserve the autonomy, dignity, and empower victims.
0: Bill S-12, I should say, not C-12. Kelly Favreau, advocate for sexual assault survivors, joins me now. Kelly, thank you so much.
5: Thank you so much, Ben. This is awesome. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Indeed, this was a hard-fought win for you, and I, I'll tell you as a reporter, I, I don't think I ever thought much about the publication bans. I simply thought, okay, well, everyone's going to agree to this. I don't think I ever realized that no one, no survivor, was ever consulted about these and how restrictive they could be for, for a very long time. You you fought to have this ban lifted, and then and, and then ran into a lot of bureaucracy around this, right?
5: Yeah, it was, um, it was a pretty long battle. I mean, I was I was sexually assaulted in uh, September of 2015 by somebody I was casually dating. Um, and I, I stress the casual part because there's no way that him and I could have ever been linked together. Um, mm-hmm. But a publication ban ended up going on my name completely without my knowledge or consent in November of 2015. And I didn't learn about it until December of 2020. And so, I mean, that's a five year gap of me not recognizing and not realizing that I could have gone to jail or I could have faced fines just for saying my name and sharing my story, which I thought was absolutely ridiculous. Um, You know, there's, I I did not want to be under a publication ban. I never asked for a ban. Uh, I didn't need the protection of a ban. I needed to talk about what happened to me. It was part of my healing. So that's kind of where this, this all sort of stemmed from. Um, And, you know, one of the things that, Uh, more and more people are looking for when they're hanging out with somebody new or they're dating somebody new, people are checking out the person they want to spend time with on court services online or the CSO Mm -hmm. to see if that person is a violent person or, you know, if it's just a speeding ticket, who cares? But if somebody's involved with assault, I'd very much like to not spend time with that person. (laughs) So when you're under these publication bans, um, That information is not actually available on court services online, so it gives people a sense of false hope that the person that they're spending time with isn't a predator, isn't somebody that, you know, hurts women. Um, So this this became a really long battle. This ate up a, a few years of my life, but... I'm, I'm glad it's
0: over now. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 don't think, I don't think people realized. I mean, I, I know, obviously, as a reporter, you know what, what, what it is to violate a publication ban and why you don't, right? I mean, we, we know the rules. But I'd never quite figured out. I mean, I, I guess it makes sense. But I never really fully comprehended that in your situation, you could face some serious penalties just for telling your story. And it's, as you have pointed out, it's your story.
5: Yeah, and, and it's an insane thing, right? So, I mean, a publication ban is an order that the court makes that prevents anyone from publishing or broadcasting or t- transmitting any information that could identify a victim, complainant, or a witness to a sexual assault, um, but the the publication ban, the idea behind it is, a la- is to allow victims or complainants or witnesses to participate in our legal system without suffering the negative consequences of being publicly identified. The, the ban is not meant to protect the identity of the accused or the offender, but um, we as victims, we're not notified of this. And one of the things that we've learned re- very recently over the last month um, from uh, Crown prosecutors testifying at uh, the Justice Committee in Ottawa is that that specific Crown has never asked a single victim if they want a publication ban, nor are these folks being notified after. Usually we just kind of find out by speak. That were under a publication ban, right? So I mean, it's it's like having consent taken away from us twice. It's it's ridiculous.
0: What at what point did you decide that you wanted to share your story? And as much as you can, as you're comfortable talking about it, at what point did you, did you decide in your journey that you wanted to share this story, and then realized? that you couldn't, or that if you did, you might, you, there might be consequences. You're right. It's, 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 being silenced. It's being silenced, right? It's uh, it's, it's mm-hmm. something done without your consent.
5: Yeah. So, I mean, as soon as I found out about the ban on my name, like, I was, I was very open about what happened to me. And I was very fortunate that I, I received great, you know, therapy and, counseling along the way to help me come to terms with what happened to me so i was i was able to talk about it i just didn't know that i legally could uh, or couldn't rather right so um yeah in december of 2020 when i found out i was like oh no this has to change like this is ridiculous i I have to get the ban off i have no idea why i can't speak but um i (laughs) <laughs> By that time, I had had a six month old child at the time. Um, right. There was no there was no reason for me to hide what happened to her. But I went out of my way as publicly as possible to say, my name is Kelly and I've been sexually assaulted. And I, no matter what I did, I couldn't get arrested. Which is super strange, um, but I had to fight for seven months to get the ban off, and I I did it by myself. I, I self represented in BC Supreme Court, and that was terrifying. Um wow. I had, I had no idea what I was doing, but I, you know, I knew that I needed my right to speak. I knew that I needed to let others know that it was okay to come forward. Um, so for seven months, I had this battle. Um, and there's n- nobody in the courts knew what they could do. And of course the crown wasn't able to assist me because um, the crown doesn't act as a lawyer, right? The crown represents the crown, <laughs> right? Like I'm i I'm yeah. a, I'm a witness to my own crime. So there wasn't anybody to help me. So I had to figure it out. And there's no information on federal or provincial websites as to what a publication ban is, what it means, what you can and cannot say, or even what the penalty is. So right. it was, it was a huge learning experience, but in June of 2021, I was successful in in self representing and getting the ban off my name. It was this huge weight of relief. Like, it shouldn't it shouldn't have felt that uh, victorious to be able to say, you know, my name and share my story. But holy smokes, it was. And it was such a weird feeling, right?
0: Yeah, doing that yourself. I mean, if anyone's ever thought about defending themselves in court, I mean, it's a huge undertaking that that you went through. What was the reaction? I mean, you were surrounded by lawyers, obviously. What was their reaction? They mustn't have ever thought. I mean, I just you, it seems like such a glaring oversight. And yet, I guess no one ever thought about the long-term consequences of these publication bans on survivors' ability to share their stories.
5: Right, and and that's exactly it. It is a long-term thing. So um, I was lucky that in my case, uh, because there was two counts of sexual assault against my perpetrator. One he was found not guilty on, and we all know that not guilty does not mean innocent. It's just I wasn't Mm -hmm. able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it happened. And the other count he was found guilty on. However, if you are under this publication ban, and every single person who is in Canada has this publication ban on their name, if their perpetrator has made it to their first court appearance. And that's a lot of people from 1988. And this ban will stay on your name indefinitely. It stays on your name even in no findings of guilt, or if your charges are uh, changed, or if there's a plea deal. It, it even stays on your name after death. So, I wow. mean, there's and there's no information about what to do, right? Like, there's no information. You're not given a piece of paper that says, Here's what a publication ban means, and you're currently under one, right? Like that is not given out to you in this huge. And here's, that you and only here's who get. to
0: call if here's who to call if you want it lifted, right? Kelly, are you happy with S12? Did it do? Did it go as far as you'd hoped that it would go? And what changes does it does it make? Does it put in place uh, for, for people that were in your situation?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bill S-12 um, was something that we never in our wildest dreams thought that we would get this quick. <laughs> we, um, we, we we started this campaign, My Voice, My Choice started this campaign uh, in October of 2022. And wow. um, it, just just to go back to one of the things you said before this Marshall break, there's, there's actually been one person who's already been prosecuted um, right. for breaching their publication ban, a woman out of Kitchener-Waterloo. Oh, yes, and yes she faced two thousand dollars in fines or a six hundred dollar jail fee but one of the things we learned is that the crown was actually fighting for jail time for her to go like sending a victim to jail for breaching her own bands we were like this is insane so we we pushed that really really hard and that was one of the that was That sort of became the focal point of our work, um, because we don't believe that anybody should be charged with breaching their own ban. So um, Bill S-12 was introduced in the Senate uh, at the end of April of 2023. The bill then went through all the stages of, you know, the first reading, second reading, committee, clause by clause, third reading, and then uh, adoption of voted, and then sent to the House of Commons. So the Senate did a really, really good job at listening to us. We ended up going out to Ottawa at the beginning of of May to kick off Sexual Assault Awareness Month. There was eight of us from My Voice. My Voice. We had sixteen meetings with parliamentarians over four days, and we were we were slammed busy. But everyone listened to us. Everyone agreed that this is a nonpartisan issue, and quite a number of people that we met with um, ended up breaking down, saying me too, and that was wow. like that was a very very emotional moment for for all of us. We're like, oh thank God, like we're not alone here. So. The bill was introduced. We were happy with uh, most of the bill being introduced. I mean, of course, there's there's tweaks we made everywhere. But um, the long and the short of it is that we were successful in campaigning our our proposed changes to say, like, listen, like we it, it's 2023. We don't need protection. We need advocacy and support. And, you know, I just want to stress that we are very pro publication bans. We think that publication bans serve a very important purpose. Um, the, our issue with them is we just want a choice in the application of them, <laughs> and we, yeah. want, we want an opportunity to say, hey, we don't want this. So um, as of last Thursday, as of October 26th, um, our changes, we lobbied hard enough that we actually got the law changed um and we're we're a group of eight women from victoria to halifax who have never met each other our entire lives up only up Mm -hmm. until recently um who came together in a whatsapp chat and had a little google drive that we put all of our ideas into and put all of our recommendations into and just kind of worked on that and were successful in getting the launching so the law, as of Thursday, now says that if a publication ban has been imposed, the courts have to, at their first reasonable opportunity, inform us of our right to apply or revoke or vary up in a, a publication ban order. So the courts must take into consideration the victim's wishes now, which is, fantastic um the yeah the law, and, and, you, it,
0: and you fought for this and you fought for this for, for i mean you've, you've spent so much time fighting for it it must and it, it's a huge and it sounds like it, it's a huge win it's a huge win for victims rights right it really is
5: very much yeah i i can't like i was it's been six days and i'm still like did we actually do this <laughs> like is it, is it really over <laughs> like yeah. we we were very very successful and we were very very lucky but we had really good Uh, parliamentarians from across all party lines fighting on our side. I mean, the NDP gave us massive support. The Liberals gave us massive support. The Conservatives gave us massive support. The Greens and the Bloc were on our side too. Um, We had this event in May that was hosted um, by the NDP in Ottawa, and the Attorney General at the time, David Lametti, showed up just to listen to what we had to say. And it's a little intimidating when you're looking around the room and you're like, oh, my God, is that the Attorney General that's here?
0: <laughs> yeah, for somebody that started on a WhatsApp chat. No, I mean, uh, Kelly, we, we, I, thank you so much for sharing your story with me, and congratulations on fighting. Sometimes when you're on the side of right, you win.
5: Sometimes, yeah. I and mean, we, we got Sometimes. very, very lucky. And, you know, it's, it's great because like the, the the law is now going to require the court to ask the victim if they want to be the subject of a ban, and it now mm-hmm. clarifies that the prosecutor has to help the victim the, the, uh, victim, get the information on the right to seek or vary or revoke a ban. Um, the and it makes it clear that, you know, the prosecution of these witnesses, nobody's going to get charged anymore for breaching their own right. ban, which is huge. And then the biggest they victory need, need for your me... Yes. Well, yeah, we, we tried real hard getting that word consent in the, in the law, and they just wouldn't go for it. So there's a few, oh, well. there's a few tricky words around that, but um, our wishes have to be entered, and it has to be known in the courts. Um, the, the biggest. You, thank you yeah, so was,
0: much for your – I appreciate your – thank you so much for sharing your story. I've run out of time, unfortunately. But, you know, I'm sorry. Congratu- sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. Congratulations. Your passion shines right through.
5: Thank you so much. Yeah, this is fun. Uh, is fun.
1: For six decades, the CPP has been the bedrock of a secure and dignified retirement for Canadians, very much including the people of Alberta. I have heard the concerns of many Canadians, including many Albertans, about the Government of Alberta's proposal to withdraw Albertans from the CPP.
0: Christian Freeland there, of course, the Deputy Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, talking about this plan that's been out there for a little bit now uh, that would see Alberta withdraw from the Canada Pension Plan and set off on its own in what would be called, I suppose, an Alberta Pension Plan, an APP. A lot of the controversy here is surrounding an independent report they had commissioned uh, by TELUS Health that, uh, that says that Alberta's owed about $334 billion if it leaves the plan to set up its new one. The issue with that is that represents more than half of the CPP's assets. So you can imagine if in it, a divorce one province walks away with more than half the assets. The rest are going to be in a bit of trouble. Uh, economists, others out there, we've spoken to them on the show, have said the, far, the number is far less, likely in line with Alberta's representation, about 15% of the population. So 15% of uh, those more than, well, nearly $700 billion in assets, right? So now everyone started to weigh in. Uh, different provincial finance ministers, including Ontario's, have written letters saying that they don't, they're don't they not in favour of this for obvious reasons. Uh, the Prime Minister got involved. Now Christia Freeland's got involved. So, it's shaping up to be one of those Alberta versus Ottawa battles, but it might be slightly different this time around because Chrystia Freeland will meet with the other finance ministers on Friday. They're having a Zoom call, I think, to talk about this. And now she sent this letter um, to The province of Alberta, essentially outlining outlining what she just said uh, there, that, you know, the CPP has been vastly successful over the past 60 years. Lots of people rely on it, that leaving it would be risky. It also leaves the rest of the country in a lurch and you're not going to get the $334 billion. Anyway, there's lots of dispute about what exactly this all means. Um, One of them is that number, right? It's that number, the $334 billion number. Here's what Danielle Smith had to say about this last week.
5: We've asked the federal government to give us their interpretation, they've declined. We've asked the CPP Investment Board to give us their interpretation, they've declined. So maybe the next step is to go to court to see if the court supports our interpretation. But I, th- I think we need to have that, that number figured out.
0: Yeah, One of the problems here is that a lot of this is in the federal ballpark. Like It's in their court, right? And I don't mean their their court of law. It's up to them to decide. So they don't really have to lay out a number until the province says it's going to go. But once you decide you're going to go, well, you better know the number before you do that, right? So we thought for tonight on Journalism Corner, when we talk to a journalist who's doing interesting stuff, we would welcome uh, 6.30 Cheds uh, at midday on 6.30 Cheds with Courtney Theriault's host, obviously Courtney Theriault. Courtney, thank
6: you. Congratulations on the job. i'll no, no, thank you. Yeah. No, I guess it is convenient that I wound up with a show that has my name on it. So... It
0: is indeed. It is indeed. Um, you know, Alberta is always the center of so much interesting stuff. And This one has been particularly interesting because we were covering this a while back I worked briefly at a pension fund I should mention so right away I thought this is a really interesting story and then I waited and watched as sort of the rest of the country didn't wake up to it and then boom the wave the wave of sort of opposition what's the reaction been like in Alberta to all of this to sort of you know I know Alberta versus you know Edmonton versus Ottawa is a pretty common battle but this is sort of Edmonton versus just about everybody else
6: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's not surprising to see Alberta and Ottawa go toe-to-toe. I mean, it's uh, kind of the uh, longest-lasting sibling rivalry in Canada, though who's Jan and who's Marsha, I think, is obviously up for debate uh, to who you talk to. But, uh, you know, it's not just an Edmonton thing in terms of the split that we've seen here, right? Because, uh, you know, certainly you can uh, read what's being spoken on social media, and this one is a topic that certainly gets tongues wagging but uh to date we've had only about 1 poll that really kind of put things into perspective and I think does, at least on the surface, capture what I think the mood in the room is, which is uh, this was one that was done by Abacus a couple weeks ago that found uh, 52% of Albertans were steadfastly against the idea of pulling out of the CPP compared to just 19% who were in favor of it and uh, not surprisingly, those numbers found that uh, it was the younger population that uh, was was more in tune with what the government was proposing here in the province because, obviously, they're a little bit further away. The the risk level for them isn't quite as substantial when, you know, you're a few years away for some voters here, uh, a few years away from being able to collect that first pension check. And I think that's representative of what we've seen. Uh, certainly, you know, again, like I said, if you go on X or Twitter or whatever we're calling it these days, uh, you're going to see people adamantly saying that, no, there there are 75 percent of Albertans who are on board with this. And I mean, at the end of the day, we've all we've got our polls, all we've got are these 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 Twitter comments. And until we potentially see a referendum, and that's another question entirely, we see a potential referendum. We don't firmly know how Albertans feel about this.
0: Yeah. I I mean, if I recall, it wasn't really mentioned during the election campaign, wasn't it? That all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. here it is. I know it's been talked about in certain circles for a long time, uh, but it wasn't mentioned. So it felt like it was a bit sprung on Albertans, too.
6: Yeah, well, it's interesting, right, because a large part of the UCP campaign, when they were running in in 2019, and again, in 2023, was they hearken back to 2015, when the NDP, uh, after victory then, uh, they brought in a provincial carbon tax, and the argument was, well, you guys didn't run on that, and here we are in 2023, and this was a question that we put to Premier Danielle Smith during the election campaign, because this has been something that she's mused about personally for years and it's something that was part of a previous report called the fair panel a fair deal panel that the province had put together under Jason Kenney then the premier and uh, so basically this was one that uh, had been kind of bubbling under the surface and when she was asked about it on the campaign trail she said flat-out no we are not campaigning on this and then here we are as soon as we are back in session one, the conversation and the engagement about an APP is front and center, and it seems like something that the government uh, regardless of the engagement that is left to be done with Albertans, the government seems to have made up its mind that it is going to go forward with a referendum on this. As I said, there's there's even going to be legislation forthcoming here in the next day or two that uh, essentially puts that into law. So not the, the law right. that this would be uh, a thing that we would go ahead with the APP, but would basically set up the parameters for that referendum. For a referendum.
0: But Courtney, I thought you are having public consultations about this first to decide whether it was worth it or not. I grew up in Quebec. I can tell you how expensive and divisive a referendum <laughs> can be. Uh, you know, I thought they were having public consultations to see if anybody actually wanted this. I know the premier does. She's she's unequivocal about it. Uh, but but I thought, I thought the people were going to have their say in all this.
6: Yeah, well, I mean, you know what? I think there certainly was an expectation that, you know, I mean, as much as the government had made it clear, as as the leaders had made it clear that this was something that they personally endorsed, that this would be an engagement process that would at least provide some sort of neutrality and, and offer Albertans the chance to say, hey, do we want this in the first place? But the very first indication that we got that perhaps, perhaps things were tilted in favor of going ahead with the referendum regardless was when the government launched its online survey uh, just oh, over yeah. a month ago. With I this. read the
0: survey. <laughs> I read and That's quite the survey. there was not a
6: single question on there asking Albertans, do you want to leave the Canada pension plan? The entirety of the survey worked under the premise of when we leave yeah. the CTP. How do you want to invest the money? Uh, who do you want to have control of the money? At no point in this survey – was the question posed if Albertans want to do that in the first place. And the engagement process has just been fraught with issues. Uh, former Finance Minister Jim Dinning, uh, who held the purse strings under Ralph Klein, uh, he's the one who's heading this panel of engagement, these, these five telephone town halls that are happening in different parts of the province, and a lot of his messaging that he's giving out during these town halls is counter to the message that the province is trying to convey. He came out during the first town hall and said, yeah, absolutely, there is going to be a referendum. It's going what? to happen. It's what the government wants. Whereas Danielle Smith and the, and the rest of the government have at least pretended to keep their cards a little closer to their chest, suggesting that it would ultimately be up to the will of Albertans. So uh, it definitely seems like uh, the decision has already been made, uh, even before you know the, the, we're out of the gates on this engagement process.
4: Home heating oil is more expensive than other forms of heat. And home heating oil is disproportionately relied upon by lower-income Canadians in rural areas across the country who need more support. That's what we're doing, and that is absolutely something I am going to continue to stand for unequivocally. While Mr. Polyev has no plan to fight climate change, and therefore no plan for the economy. Let's make a deal.
6: Let's pause the carbon tax on all home heating Until Canadians go to the polls...
0: There you have it from the House of Commons today of obviously the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition talking carbon tax today. You'll remember because I'm sure you've heard about it that last week or slightly slightly longer than that, feels like a while now, that uh, the Liberals decided to pause and institute a three-year carve-out on home eating oil, the carbon tax on home heating oil, in uh, which for all Canadians, but it mostly only impacts Atlantic Canada, where the vast majority of people who heat with oil live. Now, there was a reason for it, the carbon tax came in all at once. In in, in, in provinces in the East, and it had a huge impact on the cost of home eating oil, and it was untenable. So it was kind of the right move uh, politically, obviously, but also financially uh, for the people in Atlantic Canada. But man, it was like throwing an interception. <laughs> it was like throwing a big, fat interception because everyone else who's been railing against the carbon tax stood up and said, well, wait a second. What do you mean the carbon tax makes something unaffordable? What about us? And now we've been seeing the fallout. Courtney Terrio is the host of Edmonton's Midday on 630 Ched with Courtney Terrio. Alberta has been the epicenter of this for a long time. What was the reaction there when this this came out? Because obviously now you have kind of unanimous support for easing the carbon tax on natural gas heating, which most people in Alberta use, obviously.
6: Yeah. I mean, you could almost see Premier Danielle Smith salivating uh, behind her eyes, <laughs> her anyway eyes when yeah. uh, when this came down uh, because, you know, I mean, it's been a good stretch for her with a couple of things. Uh, obviously, we saw the Supreme Court uh, knock down parts of C-69, the so-called no pipeline bill, as uh, it was referred to here in Alberta, uh, which basically said that the feds had kind of tapped in into uh, provincial jurisdiction and kind of treaded too far. And so this kind of feeds into that a little bit as well. Right. The opportunity for Smith to uh, present a cogent and, uh, you know, arguably correct argument that uh, the province is getting shortchanged at the federal level. Um, Now, this isn't a case like we saw in Saskatchewan, where Premier Scott Moe basically came out uh, with his fighting words saying that uh, the province, Sask Energy, they're not collecting any carbon tax January 1st if they don't get a carve out. It's a little bit different here in Alberta, though, because. Whereas in Saskatchewan, it's a crown corporation. Alberta is still a private market, so they can't quite do that. But, of course, that's not going to stop Danielle Smith from taking an opportunity to uh, basically say uh, that, once again, Ottawa's got it wrong and they've got to step up and stop treating us like, uh, you know, a, a stepchild here, right? Yeah. She, she went as far as to say that while she respected the Supreme Court's decision on the carbon tax, basically saying that the feds have the right to set that minimum price threshold, uh, she said that it – conceivably could, and this is one thing we've been waiting for, uh, the Sovereignty Act, which was her signature legislation that she uh, said she could use to target uh, legislation. She didn't agree with Ottawa. She said that it could, in her mind, potentially be used here because this ruling, this carve-out, seems to go against the spirit of what the Supreme Court ruled against. So, again, this uh, Giving her a lot of ammunition in this. season.
0: Yeah, I, I love the Scott Mo one, of course, because Sask Energy is a crown corporation. It's actually by law it has to remit has to remit the carbon tax. <laughs> so he basically said, "We're going to fight this." As as, uh, as as someone put it today, I think it was Andrew Leach. We're going to fight this, and here's my guy. He's going to fight this for us. And uh, you think, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's interesting if you look at it politically, and obviously, being I'm in BC, we have the own our, the, there's a carbon tax here that was put in place the first one actually uh, by a more conservative government many years ago, so it doesn't impact BC. Certainly doesn't impact Quebec, that has its own carbon tax. Um, but everywhere else, it feels like this was one of those things the Liberals did because they had to, because they didn't want to get swamped either politically or economically. I mean, it was fair to some extent for the Atlantic provinces, um, or for anyone who heats with home eat with with oil, Quebec and Ontario, a few as well. But it really feels like they've kind of undermined. The, they've they've kind of under. It's an undermining of their entire argument around this. And I don't know how you how you can get away with that because. People are already pointing out the contradictions, even if the Prime Minister insists that there aren't any and yeah. there won't be any more car boats.
6: Yeah, I mean, it feels like they've kind of kneecapped the carbon tax. And, uh, you know, I've heard people essentially give last rights to the carbon tax this week. Uh, You know, in spite of the fact that, uh, you know, Natural Resources Minister uh, Jonathan Wilkinson said that there would be no carve-outs. And that's been echoed throughout the Liberal Party. I I think at this point that people are just taking bets and are setting up office pools to determine what date that uh, they're going to change their mind and start doling out these additional carve-outs. because as you mentioned, I mean, certainly it makes sense to, to maintain politically the stronghold in Atlantic Canada, but obviously I mean, whatever opportunity the Liberals have at uh, saving face in the next election, and certainly the polls would suggest that's a difficult thing to do, uh, would seem to come in the likes of uh, Vote Rich Ontario and Quebec, where something like this on the whole uh, just isn't going to play well. And you want to talk about uh, strange bedfellows uh, with respect to this and and what this carve-out has done. Um, you know, I was thinking about Bill Murray and Ghostbusters when he, he goes into the mayor's office talking about mass hysteria and cats and dogs living together. Well, here in Alberta, we have the governing UCP and the opposition NDP both present motions, essentially calling on the federal liberals to give us A carve out. Now, the wording was a little bit different, but you had these two parties essentially on the same page for an issue, and that just doesn't happen.
0: Not often. And then to top it all off, you had Goody Hutchings, who's the, the MP, the liberal MP from, from Newfoundland, come out today and say, well, Alberta, if you wanted a rebate, if you wanted a carve out of this, you just had to vote liberal. And I'm like, wow, they're just had, it's like, it's like they're throwing them lob balls and like, hey, why don't you just hit this one out of the park? Oh no, wait, hit this one out of the park for us. It's been, it's been a weird few weeks.
6: Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's reminiscent to me of uh, the episode where of The Simpsons where Sideshow Bob steps on a rake, and it turns yes. out that he's just covered in rakes. But it's as if the liberals had laid the rakes down themselves, because it just seems yes. time and time again that uh, this is a government that just doesn't have the capacity to, to, to understand how they're undermining uh, not just, you know, their, uh, other policies, but there's, there's something as central to their brand as this carbon tax.
0: Yeah, Courtney, how are you at taking compliments? That's our that was our question of the night. Are are you someone who who deflects them, or do you do you receive them with with grace and dignity?
6: I usually run into the other room in shame. Uh, <laughs> no, you know, <laughs> well, truth is, told, I, I I appreciate a good compliment. Uh, you know what? I try. I, I like to think of myself as a relatively humble individual, as much as one can be in media. And you know, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm gracious. I'm thankful. I appreciate a kind word. Uh, certainly, with this new job, uh, you know, it's it's good to, to to see folks enjoying the new radio show. Uh, I will say that uh, you know those comments that tell me that I'm boring, uh, that I don't even have a voice for radio. I mean, I appreciate that too, right? Because it, it kind of balances things out and makes sure that my head doesn't blow uh, blow up the size of a Remax balloon.
0: Yeah. That's, you know, it, we, that's what we all do. Compliments are tough. Courtney, congratulations on the show. Thank you for your insight on Alberta politics today. It was great. There's a compliment as well, and I mean that sincerely. I really appreciate your time tonight.
6: No, uh, thanks uh, for having me on, Ben.
5: Hey, nice shirt, man.
6: Oh, no, this shirt's ridiculous.
5: Come on, man. Just take the compliment.
1: No, never. <laughs>
5: Your hair looks good. Did you get a haircut?
1: I did. I know I look like the guy from The Matrix.
5: Oh, I love that movie. One of
1: my least favorite, a deep insult to myself. Next.
5: Cool hat, dude.
1: Only got it to cover up my dumb matrix here.
5: Nice watch.
1: Makes my wrist look small.
5: Cool pen! Looks
1: cool, writes poorly.
5: Awesome pants!
1: They're aggressively normal.
5: Just take the compliment! I will when I deserve it! Okay, well,
0: good compliment deflecting then! Thank you. There you have it. Compliment deflecting. I think we all know how to do it. Why is it that compliments make so many of us feel slightly uncomfortable? Here's a little test that I saw in an article today. You're walking back to your desk at work, or maybe you bump into an acquaintance on the street, or you see someone you haven't seen in a while in a restaurant or something like that. And that person pays you a compliment. What do you do? Do you make a joke? Do you pay them a compliment right away? Do you change the subject? Do you write it off? Do you pass the credit and go, oh, you know, someone else bought me these shoes? Or perhaps you say it was really nothing. Ah, oh, yeah, you know, that was just just the, the whole team worked on that one. Those all may sound familiar to you, right? Because while we love compliments, I think we crave them, really. Um, we don't really know how to accept them. And that makes them awkward and uncomfortable at times, which means the whole process becomes a bit awkward and uncomfortable. Why is that? And what can you do to take a compliment in stride, not stumble over it? Let me know what you think. one 877 399 Ninety-eight, ninety-eight is the text line. One eight seven seven three nine nine ninety-eight, ninety-eight. Do you are you able to take a compliment in stride? If not, why not? And joining me now with some advice on this is Gans Ferens. He's a motivational speaker, psychologist, and author of The Me Factor, your systematic guide to getting what the hell you want. Gans, thank you so much.
3: Hey, thanks for inviting me, Ben. That was a great clip, awesome. by the way
0: yeah that was, that pretty much sums it all up so let's begin at the let's start at the beginning. We all love compliments, right, especially for people we respect
3: yeah, you know like listen, compliments are like the, almost like food for your soul right um we, we like we need to know that we're accepted we're we're like humans are herd animals, and so because of that, we need to know that we're part of the herd, and when you get a compliment, it makes you feel like okay yeah i'm i'm good i I fit. Uh, This feels good. Plus, it's that that little bit of extra, you know, personal oomph that we get and that lift that we need to kind of get through uh, much more difficult times. Right. It gives us that buffer that we need to go through stress.
0: And then why
3: is it? and, And this
0: is so common. Why is it that so many of us seem to have trouble taking the praise?
3: Well, I think, you know, sometimes it's just hard being the center of attention. We may be not used to it. I mean, sometimes it's cultural. We've been told, don't brag, don't think too highly of yourself. Pride goes before a fall. You know, there's lots of things in our culture that would kind of lead us to think that taking a compliment is somehow bad or it's setting us up for something, something bad. But, you know, what it really is, is, you know, when you take a compliment well, you're giving a gift to the gift giver, (laughs) the person who had the guts to give you something, like to share something from their heart or something real that they're feeling. You know, when you take that well and you're gracious with it, you give them a gift too. And so if you can take it well, you feel happier and they feel happier
0: as well. It's odd because and this is one of those things we talk about this often when it comes to making friends you know kids have a pretty easy time making friends they don't ask too many questions they just go right in there because as kids I mean when my mom told me my art was fantastic when I was five, I believed her now clearly it wasn't but I mean it's obviously it's something we learn over time. Our, our inability to accept praise is something that develops over over the course of a lifetime really.
3: Yeah, absolutely and and you know and you know your art probably was really good for a five-year-old. You know what I mean? But, I don't think so. Um, thank you, Gads. That's very that's very nice of you to see. I just deflected
0: that. But go, thank you for you, saying so. There
3: you go. <laughs> Leading by example. I love it. Um, but yeah, yeah, we 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 get all these messages from wherever, like just society, media, church, family, culture. Um, and but but really, you know, a healthy self-esteem, a healthy sense of who you are and what you can do is actually a blessing to the people around you. If I, have, if I have skill that I can, like, let's say I can lift a lot of weight, let's say, right? And then somebody's trapped beneath something, but I don't believe that I can lift that, I'm not going to offer help. I'm not going to think that I'm good enough to be able to help somebody out when they really need help. But the same is true if we, you know, if we're kind or if we're smart or if we dress well or whatever, right? When we have a good, like, reasonable and objective sense of who we are and we can take the good with the bad, it helps us to be able to offer more to the world around us. And it actually helps people to feel safe around us when they know that we are comfortable in our own skin. Um, you know, when, 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 they, when people know that we're solid, we understand who we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly of who we are. But especially the good, it helps people feel safe around us and they they're attracted to us.
0: Right. And I guess we all have areas that we feel we're competent in, right? And so, someone, you know, there's always that person, oh, so and so knows everything about movies. Let's ask them. And I guess, in mm-hmm. some senses, that's a compliment that people find quite easy to take. I suppose sometimes when the compliments kind of come out of left field, it destabilizes us for a minute because we start to question, and you mentioned it earlier about the herd, we start to question, okay, who is this person? Why are they complimenting us? And, and, and you sort of find yourself on shaky ground. And I guess when you're destabilized, what you do is any of those things I was mentioning earlier, to try to exactly. put yourself back on solid ground, deflect, and so on.
3: Yeah, yeah, especially if, especially if the compliment kind of violates our own self-image, right? If I don't think I'm, you know, my haircut is particularly nice, um, you know, somebody says, hey, I really like your hair, you know, it's like, um, really? What, what is that, right? And But but I think it is really good for us to be open to hearing different perspectives because then our our sense of self those edges that we don't feel quite comfortable enough with, those edges can start to grow. And actually it makes us more whole. We feel more comfortable, like I said, in your own skin. And then that, that just makes us um, uh, more, of a, more of a force in the world for, for good and for the things we want to accomplish.
0: Yeah, I was reading that. It's that it, as you and you pointed at it already. That accepting a compliment is accepting someone else. It's their perspective, right? If someone says, right. "That's a great shirt," and you're like, "I don't really like this shirt," but if they say, "That's a great looking shirt," it's their perspective. And 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 to open yourself up to that, to that different perspective, I suppose is is what you're supposed to do. Although for the first few seconds, you're still going to think, "Is this person making fun of making fun yes. of me?" Because yes. that's kind of the well, funny well, part of it. We sort of think, "Wait a second. If people, listeners, were texting in tonight about this. They often question the motives of the person paying the compliment specifically if they don't know them that well or you know, right. or whatever. But yeah, we really do. <laughs> we're a suspicious lot.
3: Well, yeah, some of that's from, you know, just kind of like junior high, like hangover, right. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like some of the stuff they'll get teased for in elementary school and junior high. But, you know, I, I think most of us can, if we're, if we're actually paying attention and, you know, especially listening to a program like this and listening to some of the advice, we can kind of tell when a compliment's like legit, and when it's like, okay, well, somebody's trying to like, you know, just butter me up for something, or they're trying to just kind of man- manipulate me, or they're teasing me, right? But really, yeah. what a compliment is when somebody has the guts to share a, like a legitimate compliment, a, a, a real compliment with you. What they're doing is they're they're in they're initiating intimacy. Okay, right. they're being they're being um, assertive in that. Okay. If intimacy is the willingness to be seen or myself being able to be seen, I'm going to show you a little bit about myself by telling you how I feel about your hair or your shirt or your smile or whatever. And so it really is, it takes a lot of guts to give a compliment. And so it's honorable to like accept the compliment and honor that, that, that sacrifice, so to speak, that, that courage that the other person used to be able to tell you how they feel about you
0: right and and that connection too, as well, because and i Absolutely. I guess that's what part of it too is as and you mentioned it earlier as well, is that we um you know we we tend to be a little bit afraid of that intimacy, right, so whoever's offering it, you could i mean that's kind of your way of again, it kind of discombobulates you someone you don't know particularly well says oh that was fantastic and you think well it it wasn't I didn't have thought of it that way I never (laughs) thought it was that great and so it does knock you off knock you off balance a bit does it change I mean does it change I know that we always think of Canadians as being sort of a little bit we 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 really do value humility here at least we think we Mm -hmm. do we try we pretend (laughs) we do Uh, we value humility Yeah, it's the All shucks thing. Like, great game. Yeah, it was okay. It was not bad. I want to thank the team. Like, anytime you watch an NHL interview, if you call hey, you had eight goals today. That's fantastic. I just want to thank the team, right? I mean, that's kind of baked (laughs) into us. Whereas you don't see it as it's kind of different in the U.S. a little bit.
3: Yeah, yeah, it it is. It is. Well, I mean, it's a different, different culture, even though we, like, seem the same. We're very, very different in certain aspects. But yeah, there is that, there's that, um, that value for humility. And, and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing to share the glory with the team and with the people around you, but it is, you can do that without necessarily deflecting or throwing away the compliment. You say, no, I appreciate that. It's really nice. And you know, it's so good that I had the team with me to be able to help me do this. Right. So we can do, we can do both, but it really does help us and, and, and does something nice for the person giving the compliment when we can, you know, accept it and go with it. It's it's reciprocity. And you don't have to necessarily give a compliment back, but you can. Nothing wrong with that. Gans Ferentz
0: is with us this half hour, motivational speaker, psychologist, author of The Me Factor. We're talking about compliments and why so many of us struggle to accept praise and how you can be better at it. Why it's such a good, oftentimes... It's a compliment to take a compliment, right? Someone's offered their hand in friendship to you or they've offered their hand in praise and and you're just meant to reach out and take it, I suppose. Uh, Gans, how do you get better at it? Because I feel like clearly you're always going to be caught off guard a little bit. That moment, that Mm -hmm. instant reaction that you have just someone paying you a compliment it may, might never change, but you do have a few moments there where you can kind of gather your thoughts and maybe think about what you want to say next. And I guess maybe that's the important time. Take a second, take a second to process what's just been said to you.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good strategy. You know, it, it, just like every, everything else, it's a skill. And skills can be learned and they can be developed and they can get easier and become more natural. But I think taking a second and not just kind of knee-jerk reacting, oh, no, 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 that's not true. Or, oh, thank you, here's some money or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. um, you, you yeah. can actually take a moment and say, oh, yeah, uh, I'm working on this. Oh, okay, well, thank you. Uh, that was it was really nice of you to say, you know. Um, and And as you take that moment to consider – and you practice it, you're going to get better. It's going to become more natural. It's going to become more fluid. And then also I would say, have the intention of being able to accept the good that comes into your life, not just in comments, but also just sort of the abundance of the universe or of life or the family around you or whatever. When you start doing that, it's well, it, it really fills your, what I call your happy bank. Right. And, and, you know, the more you have in your happy bank, then, if there's some withdrawals because of stress or other things, you're just better off.
0: Yeah, you could never have it to have too many deposits in the happy bank. I don't.
3: That's think. right. <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, you know the way the way you put it is is really interesting because I think that that's part of it too. Is sometimes when we struggle to accept a compliment, part of it's humility, part of it's we're yeah. not sure if, if we're if if it's coming from a good place or not. But part of it's just sort of our own vision of ourselves, right? That someone sees something in you that you don't see and you can't really accept it. And then when they, again, you went back to the haircut thing, which of course is nice haircut is always one of those things. You're like, do you mean that? Do you, but yeah, just to (laughs) accept someone else's uh, someone else's perspective of you is, is an interesting to do too. And I guess that's part of why we, we struggle too, because if the perspective doesn't quite match our own perspective of ourselves, it can be difficult to know what to say.
3: Yeah. It can be kind of jarring, right? But you know, I think I think good advice is to like you don't ha- you don't have to necessarily. Um, I don't know if the right word is believe every compliment you get, especially if you don't think it's coming from the right place. But I don't think it's wrong to pay- take people at their word. If somebody says, "Hey, you know, you got nice smile," I, you know, I kind of don't care why they said it. It's like okay, well, I'm gonna take that. <laughs> it's like thank you, say <laughs> th- thanks for noticing, right? You know what I mean? Like yeah. But but having that sense of healthy self esteem and giving giving the other person the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, well, maybe they're for real. Even if they're not, it's nice to hear. I'm going to take it. doesn't mean I have to give them money or, you know, like join the cult or whatever. Right.
5: Yeah.
0: Over the break, I was thinking about, uh, about compliments and leave it to Beaver, of course, where Eddie Haskell, the character, that sure is a nice dress you're wearing, Mrs. Cleaver. That sort of is, is how we sometimes view compliments. You're like, okay, what do you want, right? Yeah. And I guess that's, <laughs> that's that balance that we have to achieve between accepting kindness and also recognizing when it's not, when there are intentions there.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think also knowing that just because you accept the compliment doesn't mean you owe the other person anything. So you, that nice, nice dress, awesome. I don't care what you watch because it doesn't really matter, right? But, but thanks for the compliment anyway.
0: <laughs> That's great. Well, guys, listen. I, thank you so much for your perspective on this. It's one of those things we were talking about. Uh, this came up in another conversation, and, and really appreciate you being able to jump on and talk about these things in a way that uh, that makes sense. So just take a moment when someone compliments you, right?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, and practice. Right. you get better. Hey, there you so go for with everything. Me, I really appreciate it. <laughs>
4: Georgie, aren't you going to say, hello? Oh, come on, fucko. Don't you want a balloon? I'm
5: not supposed to take stuff from the strangers.
6: My dad said so. Very wise of your dad, Georgie. Very wise indeed. I, Georgie, am Pennywise the Dancing Clown. You are Georgie. So now we know each other.
0: Right. It. (laughs) It. If you weren't afraid of clowns before seeing It or reading the book, you may have been. I mean, clowns, right? Growing up, they're supposed to be a figure of fun, but often they end up being portrayed as a figure of fear these days, such as it was in that one, Stephen King's Pennywise, of course. Cooler phobes, they're called. People with a fear of clowns. Now, a lot of us have phobias, or at least fears. I don't much like heights, right? I could do without snakes, although I don't mind them that much. But all those fears seem rational, right? I mean, they're kind of of course you're afraid of heights. Of course, maybe because if you fall, you hurt yourself. (laughs) Of course, maybe you have afraid you're afraid of wild certain wild animals, because why not? They can hurt you, right? Um, sometimes those fears can be a bit irrational. But when In a class that teaches phobias at or talks about phobias at the University of South Wales, one thing comes up on every questionnaire asking students what they're afraid of that is slightly, well, I mean, it's, it's certainly not a danger, and it's people's fear of clowns. People sometimes say they're terrified of clowns. In fact, in one study, respondents rating 21 different occupations by level of creepiness, clowns scored the highest. Clowns scored the highest above anything else you can think of. Clowns scored the highest. Why is that? Where does it come from? Uh, we thought this was something, you know, the day after Halloween. Maybe it's a tough day for people who have clown phobias, right? Because there are, there. I mean, maybe fewer now, but there are always a few clowns out there. And I was really curious as to where it came from. Uh, James Greville is a lecturer in psychology at the University of South Wales. He also, and he joins me now to talk about this. He's been studying this. James, thanks so much for your time tonight
2: pleasure thanks for having me
0: tell me about i mean this is that time of year i mean lots of people out and about yesterday i'm sure if you have any kind of phobia of uh of things that could be a halloween costume it must be a bit of a tense time of year but tell me a bit about phobias period i mean they they seem irrational and yet lots of people have them
2: well, some seem to be irrational and, and others uh, less so uh, we we know that some people have fears of things that seem to be rational on on the face of it lots of people are afraid of things like heights snakes spiders and that makes sense from an adaptive perspective. Uh, it makes sense to be afraid of heights because if you fall from a great distance, it can seriously injure or kill you. And so um, those kinds of things make sense. But then there are some phobias which seem on the surface of it to be irrational. And um, you know, that the, it's interesting then to try and understand what the reasons uh, behind those phobias might be.
0: Right, and 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 one of them, I guess, because you do ask, I gather students are asked in general. There's a form that they people fill out to talk about their phobias, and one of the more perplexing ones I've always found is clowns.
2: Absolutely. So uh, our um, the director of our lab, Phil Tyson, it's uh, something he's asked students in his class every every year is um, to, to tell tell us some things that you're afraid of, and um, Phil noticed that every year there were a small number of students who consistently I, I would identify clowns as, as something um, of which they were afraid and so um, he decided to start investigating this area and um, as someone who's afraid of clowns myself right when I, when I find when I found out about this I, I had to join the research team and uh, um, you know get my teeth into this subject because it's, uh, it's a fascinating one to me per- personally as well as professionally
0: it is. You must have brought so much insight into it as well. Tell me, because I, I, I don't know whether this was your experience, but I gather from the research that you did that this is very often not related to some childhood experience. We often think of something like the fear of something being related to some kind of sp- scary childhood experience, perhaps, but not really in this case.
2: Well, that, that's something that we uh it's intuitive you know to, to to think that that might be the case but um, what we found is that um, so there's on our team there's uh, myself mm-hmm. phil um dr shirkeela mm-hmm. davis and then uh, sophie scorry who is our phd student uh, who was um, this, this is the basis of her phd and what we've been in- investigating um is that um many different hypotheses that uh, f- could potentially underlie the fear of clowns So we scoured the existing literature on fears and phobias and generated a number of potential ideas as to what the the underlying cause of clown fear might be. And then um, the studies that we've conducted uh, attempt to to sort of see what the evidence is, the level of support that exists for each of these hypotheses, one of which was that um, fear of clowns is learned through experience. In a very obvious sense, if you had a bad experience with a clown, then you may well go on to develop a fear of clowns, just as if you get bitten by a dog, you may well end up going on to develop a fear of dogs. But what we found is while that was the explanation for a fair number of participants in our sample, it was um, by no means the only explanation or or even the most common explanation. In fact, it it was the least common explanation of all the um, different uh, hypotheses that that we came up with. So um, yes, it it does account for... Um, a substantial number of people's fear of clowns, but um, not all or, or even most. Do, do you recall what prompted yours? Um, <laughs> again, it's difficult sometimes because you're going back in your memory. But yes. I, I, I've had a fear of clowns for about as long as I can remember since, since a very young childhood. But I, I do have a distinct memory of um uh, it must have been a nightmare. Um, it couldn't have been anything else. When I was I was very young, um, a clown stuck its head through my bedroom curtains and pulled a face at me, and I ran terrified, screaming into my parents' bedroom. Uh, now, obviously, this had to have been a dream. There's no way it could have been real, but it felt very real to me because, with most nightmares, you get the sense of of waking up from a nightmare. And even though the dream may have f- felt very real, very scary, um, you, you know it was a dream at least on some level, but. With this experience, there was no sense of, of waking up at all. I just saw the clown and ran. Wow. And so in my memory, it's always felt very real. And and I've um, been afraid of clowns ever since then. But um, I can't recall you know, if, if I had a fear of clowns even before that. I suspect I may well have, and I suspect that there was something about clowns that, that unsettled me anyway and that prompted me to have that nightmare.
0: Yeah, that'd do. That would do. It. That would do it. What is it? So, what are the other facets? I mean, I can imagine that maybe if the first movie you saw as a kid was it, or, or you know, there's there were certain things that you could imagine. The way clowns are portrayed, the the way sort of clowns are turned from this sort of symbol of kind of funniness and 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 happiness into these symbols of evil is very tempting for horror writers, right? So we see a lot of them in that case. And of course, there are the real life examples of the John mm-hmm. Wayne Gacys and so on. But mm-hmm. If you focus on that, I get it. That must be the the cultural element of it but there are other things too that i found really interesting about sort of being able to read expressions and the certain grotesqueness mm-hmm. of clowns that i found really interesting that you looked into
2: yeah yeah that's right so uh, we've obviously um t- t- had a look at the the journey the the evolution of, of the clown uh, from a, a figure of fun to to um you know a figure of fear and um you know that that's a that's an interesting development in itself and um what we it's a big uh, you know chicken and egg question there mm. is that are people afraid of clowns because they started being used in the horror genre or um are clowns used in the horror genre because people find clowns scary and they therefore naturally lend themselves to do oh, right. that and um what we have found uh, in our studies is that uh, Media influences and the representation of clowns, everything you just mentioned, from them appearing in things like Stephen King's It and uh, John Wayne Gacy and so on. That, that the these sorts of um, informational in, uh, influences um, are, are another a, a major driver of clown fear in in some individuals. Um, and again, that that also sort of makes sense because even if you don't have a direct experience um, with a clown yourself that was unpleasant, by seeing them. You know, displayed in these ways. Also, again, it makes sense to have a fear of of clowns behaving badly. Effectively, but again, uh, this didn't. This still didn't account for all, or even most, of our participants. It was a a strong predictor for some, but there were there were other influences as well. And um, what those other influences suggested to us is that there is something intrinsic about clowns that that people find, or at least a certain, you know, proportion of people find scary.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense because for it to be learned, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. have that kind of visceral reaction to it, right? Because people I know, and I know a few, you're not the only one, you're not the first person I met who doesn't like clowns, uh, James, but um, it's much more visceral than learned, right? It's sort of the same reason why some people are absolutely terrified of being stung by something, uh, mm-hmm. which, which I mean, it's a strange comparison because as you pointed out earlier, that's more of a survival technique, not wanting yeah. to be stung by something. But it is that same kind of sort of visceral reaction to something that you don't really learn, right? Like you can't, it means you can't really rationalize it away and say, oh yeah, that's right. I just saw it, therefore. Uh, it's, it, it's I guess it's deeper than that. What, what does it boil down to then? What did you manage to... To figure out about where these fears, I guess it's uh, colorophobia. Is that right? Colorophobia. Right?
2: Colorophobia. Yeah. I think is, is the is the correct pronunciation. Um, yeah. And uh, yes, yeah, so that, that that is actually I think the, the, the most interesting aspect of, of um, clown fear is those seemingly irrational uh, explanations for it. Because obviously, it makes sense to be afraid of something you had a bad experience with, or if you see somebody behaving in in malevolent ways, that that makes sense. The other explanations then I think were, were potentially the, the most interesting because as you say, it points to there being something visceral, something something innate, almost hardwired about why some people have this, this reaction to clowns. And, and we were interested in, in in you know delving into that and trying to understand it from a number of different perspectives. So one of which is the uncanny valley hypothesis. So um Some some people may may have heard all this already, but um, it's the the, the basic idea that it it evolved from a study of uh, human-computer interaction and and androids. Oh,
0: right. Interesting, yeah.
2: Yeah, And it's the idea that what you get with android is something that looks near-human, but not quite. And what researchers in this area found out is that the more human something looks, the more we like it, until you get to a point where it looks almost completely human but just not quite and at that moment the liking ratings for that thing drop sharply and if you plot that on the graph of course it looks like a valley hence the uncanny valley so something that looks almost human but not quite um seems to elicit feelings of of, of an uneasy even revulsion and so of course this is not specific to clowns as i said it can be applied to 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 androids to dolls to puppets maybe but it it does seem to be you know uh, definitely a potential explanation for fear of clowns because clowns well they're often made up you know sometimes the entirety of, of the face is covered. Um, and sometimes you know maybe the some accessories are used to, to make the face look slightly distorted you know a, a bulbous nose a enlarged forehead that that kind of thing and these things then would add to that impression of uncanniness and, and hence make this a potential explanation for fear of clowns.
0: Right, we recognize it as being something close, but not not quite.
2: Right, not quite. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the one of the questions we used in our in our psychometric um, survey on on clown fear was, um, I I think clowns look more like aliens or demons rather than humans, and and that that question was endorsed uh, by by quite a, a number of our our respondents
0: that 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 too will do it how do you is it i was always is it worth combat is it worth something i mean even in your personal case is it something that you try to to get rid of or is it just something you live with what what, what strategies are is it worth getting rid of and what would you do to do so uh,
2: well that's that's always something you have to try and work out isn't it whether you know if you have some fears phobias whether it's uh something that would be adaptive for you to try and work through it and um a very common method and successful method for treating, treating a wide variety of fears and phobias is, of course, um, exposure therapy. Basically, facing your fears. And um, now, of course, there are, are ways to do that uh, with a, a professional approach. But, but for me, I just uh, I watched Stephen King's It a bunch of times and just uh, tried to get over it that you did. way. <laughs> I I did. I to, How was that? A, How was that? I had it um, pretty awful, actually. I don't keep it. I, I had nightmares well into my adulthood about, about Pennywise from it. And um, as the years went by, I, I guess uh, I, I got better at somehow like controlling those those nightmares. And uh, I, I, I now no longer dream about Pennywise, but I dream that I'm dreaming about Pennywise. Very sort of inception, like it's like a dream within a dream. And that, that makes me, it makes it, uh, makes me less afraid
0: it's um it is i mean phobias are, are they are strange things of course And it, james uh w- how interesting to speak to you Bo- both studying this it must be in some ways it must be therapeutic to study this as well
2: yeah uh, that, that's that's why i dived headlong into it
0: yeah well james thank you so much for your insight on this both academically and personally i appreciate it
2: oh absolute pleasure thank you very much for having me ben